Well, please open the Word of God once again to 1 Peter chapter 3. In recent weeks, we've been witnessing how that living as a Christian is sometimes going to require us to live a countercultural sort of life. We can't just go along with what everybody else is doing in the culture. And that was never more true than what we see in the text before us. I want to warn you at the outset of our study that what we're going to examine in God's word this morning is extremely controversial. And given so little time that we have here in this kind of a setting to discuss a passage like this, there's just no way to possibly answer all the questions that we would raise. And so I'm going to ask that you would please write down any questions you have, and you can approach me anytime. You can approach me afterwards. I promise I'm not trying. I certainly don't enjoy to offend anyone. But did you know the Bible calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth? The church is to uphold God's truth at any time, in any age, regardless of what the culture says. And so in our church, we've resolved that we want to preach the truth, we want to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, regardless of what anyone else says. Whatever the tides of popular opinion, the one place people should be able to go for the undiluted word of God is the church. And I pray the Lord keeps us faithful to that calling. Well, having said all that, remember in the context we saw last week from verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2, that Peter has just described for us Jesus' behavior. Jesus' perfect behavior, patiently enduring injustice. He's shown us a perfect example of how to deal with difficult people, those who mistreat you. And notice how Peter now begins our text, verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, in the same way, you wives. Now again, go down to verse 7 of chapter 3. In the same way, you husbands. You see, in this text, Peter, having related how Christ conducted himself... Enduring injustice, and having shown us how Christ conducted himself, he's now showing us how to conduct ourselves in the home. And he has a, a word from the Lord for wives, for husbands, to conduct ourselves in the same way as Christ would and has. So with that in mind, we've entitled our study, Displaying Christ in Your Marriage. That's the Lord's will for every Christian here. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text Let's remember, this is the word of our Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. There the Lord tells us, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, 
and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask God to speak to us once again from his word. Our Holy Father, we do need your help. I certainly need your help. We pray that you would communicate your truth through your servant. We pray that whatever pressures, whatever ideologies we might have entertained from the culture around us, we pray that today truth would be louder. I pray that your truth would take root in our hearts. I pray that you would soften hearts. Father, I ask that no one would choke upon your word. I ask that no soil here would be so hard that it is not penetrated, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a softening work, that what you tell us, we will do, that your design is something we would embrace. Father, we pray if anybody be in our midst who doesn't know the Savior, that you would also convict them and draw them to know the most important relationship of all with your Son. This we ask and desire in Jesus' name. Amen. A woman once shared the following story in Reader's Digest. She says that the speaker at their women's club was lecturing on marriage. And so she asked the audience, as she was prone to do, how many of you want to mother your husbands? Well, one member in the back row immediately shot her hand up. This was unusual. The speaker had given this talk many times before. Never had this happened. And, and so a bit taken back, she stopped and she said, you do? You do want to mother your husband? And uh, the woman echoed, mother? Oh, no, I, I thought you said smother. <laughs> Everyone, you can imagine, got a kick out of that. But sadly, the reality is that while marriage is at least supposed to be about love and about uh, romance somewhat, it's often a whole lot more of heartache and strife and sometimes even abuse. We've all heard stories. Our marriages are not perfect. Marriages everywhere are falling apart. It's no secret. We hear that divorce rates are actually declining, but the reason for that is that people are no longer getting married. It is viewed as cumbersome, as irrelevant, as unnecessary. An article from Time Magazine published just last month indicates that only 63% of children in the U.S. live in a home with married parents. This has disastrous ramifications for our society and for the church. Much of our culture looks at marriage as nothing more than a social construct. It's a social construct, and that means it's society that determines what a marriage is and may redefine it as they wish. And so the said traditional marriage between a man and a wife, as dictated in the Bible, that, that's just an old construct. That is outmoded, and it is worth discarding. But you see, the Bible strongly disagrees with that premise. And so before studying our text, we need to consider who is, really, who is the final authority on defining marriage? Because if we don't establish that, then we're just talking past one another. Is it God? Is he the final authority? Or is it man? Is it the Bible? Or is it the culture? As a Christian, without apology, I want to show you what the Bible has to say about marriage. You can hear what the feminists think and all the woke people anytime you want by just turning on the television. But 
Here, in the house of God, we want to see what the word of the Lord says about marriage. And in the Bible, we learn that marriage is not a social construct, however men have abused it, however much the institution of marriage may have been wielded by men as a tool of patriarchal oppression, that is never, it was never God's design. The Bible teaches that marriage began with God. It's his idea. It was God who actually officiated the first marriage, the first wedding between the first man and the first woman that he created. Just as God himself within his own being is a unity with a diversity he is three persons, that is, in one divine being. And there is an order between these persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Bible teaches that this God of order has also created man and woman as equals. They are equals, yet they are diverse. And as 1 Corinthians 11 explains, just as there is an order within God himself, within the Trinity, so there is an order within marriage. This is not an order of superior over inferior. It's an order that involves a subordination of equals. So this is very important. The Bible goes on to reveal in Ephesians 5 that God instituted marriage to serve as a drama, as a dramatic reenactment of his covenant relationship with his chosen people. And so for the Christian, marriage isn't about making love. It's not about finances. It's not even about making your dreams come true. No, marriage is, for the Christian, according to the Bible, primarily about honoring God, the one who designed it. That's what the Bible teaches. All right, so now for some context here, before we jump into our text, if you look at verse 1, Peter says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. When Peter speaks of husbands disobedient to the word, he's talking about husbands who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, these are husbands who are not believers. And so this has created a real conflict in the home. Peter is writing here to wives, Christian wives, married to non-Christian husbands. And the Bible, I want to say at the outset, is clear that a Christian should not choose to marry a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 says Christians are only to marry in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6 says that a believer marrying a non-believer is like trying to join light and darkness. It can't be done. It's like trying to live with somebody who's choosing to live in another universe. And by the way, this is a good reason Christians shouldn't even date non-Christians. You're just opening yourself up for a lot of heartache. Well, presumably, most of the women Peter's addressing here in his letter had become Christians after the fact. They had become Christians after being married to these non-Christian men. But whatever the case, this is their present predicament. And maybe somebody's wondering, well, Pastor... Why does Peter address only Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands? Why didn't he talk to Christian husbands married to non-Christian wives? Certainly there were men in that situation in the first century. Well, the answer is first century Roman culture. You see, in the Roman provinces Peter's writing to, wives were only expected to follow their husbands. And so... While there certainly would have been Christian men married to non-Christian women, these non-Christian wives, these non-believing wives, would have likely followed their husbands to the church. That was just what they were expected to do. That's not the way it is in our culture, is it? 
No, I mean, now, and we're thankful, women are treated as equals. They have their own right to make their own decisions. So Peter's exhortation, I hope it's clear to all of us, to wives, these Christian wives yoked to non-Christian husbands, that applies to Christian husbands yoked to non-Christian wives. And what he wants them to do as, as we feel this conflict in the home, this unequal yoke, a spouse disobedient to, to the word, while well, you yourself want to follow Christ, the word of God in general would show us the first thing a spouse should do in that situation is share the work. You want to share the gospel with your spouse. You want them to come to know Christ, of course. A Christian could do that in one of many ways. But see, Peter doesn't himself directly deal with that. He just cuts straight to the hard case. He goes right to the case where the spouse, this non-believing spouse, doesn't want to hear it. They're disobedient to the word. They don't want to go to you to church. In fact, they demand you don't talk to them about Christ. What do we do in that case? It's the hard case. Well, do you preach louder in defiance? No, Peter says that if that's where your spouse is, they won't hear it from your words. They need something even louder. Your actions. They need your lifestyle. Peter says in such a case you are to live your faith. That is, live a life that attracts your spouse to Jesus. This method has already been prescribed. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter has said, keep your behavior excellent. And that's where we dealt with display Christ to the world. Well, that's the context here, the historical context for these verses. Peter's called Christians to display a Christ-like attitude toward civil authorities, toward those in authority who don't even treat us well, like our employers who don't treat us right. Now Peter calls Christians to display Christ-likeness in the home. And his primary point in this text is that Christians must display Christ-likeness in their marriage. Christian, are you married? You must display Christ-likeness in your marriage. How is this to be done? Well, Peter gives two exhortations for how Christians can display Christ-likeness in their marriage. The first exhortation is to the wives, toward their husbands, and the second exhortation is to the husbands, toward their wives. So let's begin here with the first exhortation for Christian wives. Don't fall out of your chair. He says, a Christian wife must let her husband lead. That's the first exhortation here. She must let her husband lead. Peter uses that unpleasant word. Wives, be submissive. There it is again. Be submissive to your own husbands. Now, Peter's not endorsing the Victorian model of a woman taking the role as a doormat. You know, that, that's not the idea here. But on the other extreme, some have looked at this and they've really tried to relieve any tension by kissing up to feminism's idea of reinterpreting the Bible. And that's equally wrong. So we need to avoid these extremes. Once again, submission here does not mean inferiority. But it does acknowledge an order. It's an order that God himself instituted in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, this is after he created Adam, the first man, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That would be the woman. That's woman. God created her as a helper for the man. This is not a matter of inferiority. This is the idea. The idea here is that of a wife's responsibility to her husband is like that of a co-pilot to a pilot. Both pilots are capable of flying the plane. But both work together. It's the pilot who assumes responsibility for the flight 
Well, the co-pilot assists him to get the plane where it needs to go. And Peter is going to go on to indicate that wives are co-heirs. They are fellow heirs. They are co-equals in the same grace of life with their husbands in verse 7. So his call to be submissive is not a wife's concession to her own inequality. Likewise, when we see the Son of God, Jesus Christ, submissive to the Father, the Son isn't in submitting to the Father, conceding his inferiority, conceding less capability than the Father. He is simply acknowledging, honoring an order that exists within God's triune being. Such is the case in marriage. Submission does not mean inequality or inferiority, but it is God's plan. I would add this too. Further, this submission Peter's calling Christian wives to does not mean that the wife must agree with whatever the husband believes or with whatever the husband does or says. She cannot, of course. The Christian wife is not to fear her husband. She's only to fear and worship God. And because she is first a follower of Christ, a Christian wife can't simply obey whatever her husband tells her to do, just like we can't obey whatever the government tells us to do. But this call to be submissive is God's call for a wife to let her husband lead. That's not plain just in this text, but there are other texts in the Bible that clearly reaffirm that. There's no way around that. So how could a Christian woman voluntarily place herself under the leadership of her husband? Well, verses 1 through 6 here, Peter gives us three examples or three principles. Three principles that empower a woman, and I use that term deliberately, empower a wife's submission. First, we should realize this submission is motivated by pure love. By pure and true love. Peter says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that. Here's the reason. Here's the motivation he offers. If any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. And of course, that means one to Christ. Well, this is why I believe this call for submission here is being motivated by pure love. Pure love is genuine concern for the good of the other. In this case, for the good of your spouse. And there is no greater good for your spouse that you could be concerned about, that you could be motivated about, than their being one to Christ. Than their eternal salvation by entering into a relationship with Christ like you have. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And likewise, the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving husband. Uh, through her believing husband. You are the instrument. If you're a believer, you are the instrument that God intends to use to draw your unsafe spouse to the Lord. That's biblical. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 16, who knows, wife, maybe you will save your husband. Maybe God will use you to bring your unsafe husband to the Lord. The wife, the Christian wife, is to submit herself to her husband out of love. Love for her husband. Because this is God's plan for winning her husband's heart. So pastor, someone might ask, what if my husband has been one to the Lord? What what if he already knows Christ? Does that mean I no longer need to let him lead? Well, no, it doesn't end there. Because the love driving a wife's submission is not merely to be her love for her husband, but it's her love for her Lord. The love motivating a wife's submission should ultimately be her love to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul grounds it in something deeper there. 
I'm just saying the love, the kind of love motivating a Christian wife's submission to her husband is deeper than just her love for her husband, seeking his good, seeking what she knows and believes is best for him and his relationship with God. But her love motivating her to submit to her husband and follow his leadership, not to do wrong, but insofar as he's following Christ, insofar as he's not asking her to sin, her submission to him is as deep as her love, her submission to Christ. Now Peter says, you Christian wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that, and here's love's motivation again, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. A few weeks ago, we heard Peter saying, Christian, the world is watching. Now he's saying, wives, understand, this applies to you even in the context of your marriage, even at home. Your husband is watching. And if you're a non-Christian spouse, this would go for a, a husband or a wife. You're a believer in Christ, but you're married to somebody who's not. If your non-Christian spouse knows you are a Christian, and they should know that, then everything you're doing, how you're living, as they observe your works for good or evil, that is always going to be recorded for as evidence for your faith or against your faith. You're either adding reasons for your spouse to believe you or to disbelieve you, not take your faith seriously. To display Christ's likeness in your marriage, Peter exhorts, wives, let your husbands lead. That's the first exhortation to wives. And how can a wife do that? He says her submission is motivated by pure love to her devotion to her husband and devotion to God. But Peter adds that this submission is managed by inner beauty. Motivated by pure love, managed by an inner beauty. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. Now stop right there. Why is Peter suddenly talking about jewelry and hair and dresses? What's the idea here? Well, in their pagan culture, just like ours today, a woman can be tempted to believe that the key to winning her husband, winning his heart, winning his attraction, winning his favor, is really about physical beauty. It's about how I look. It's about catching his eye. And so a wife in this situation might think, if my husband considers me pretty enough, he'll keep me. Even though I'm a Christian, he'll listen to me. Maybe he'll consider my faith. After all, it's no secret that men are profoundly influenced by what they see, by a woman's physical appearance. So some women will give much attention to dressing up the external because this kind of beauty, in the sight of man, that is, can give a woman a sense of power, a sense of, of manipulation. Peter mentions three ways that this can happen, three externals, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Of course, that's not comprehensive. And obviously, Peter's not forbidding any of that. He's not forbidding any braiding of hair, any wearing of jewelry, because he's certainly not forbidding any wearing of dresses. Peter's not forbidding cosmetics, any attempt to beautify yourself. Like an old preacher once said, if the barn needs painting, then go ahead and paint it. <laughs> but Peter is warning against excess. He's warning against the, the sort of, of exhibitionism that is rampant on social media today. You see, Christian, if you have a social media platform, most of us do, that is not a place to exhibit your body to the world. We are not to show off our bodies. This is narcissistic and just 
idolatry of self. Christian, your social media platform, if it's good for anything, should be for displaying your faith. Peter knows that, and, and he knows that 1 Samuel 16, 7, I love this principle. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He knows there's something more to us than the body, than what everybody else looks at, than, than what's on all these magazine covers. God looks at the heart. And so he wants us to look and consider this morning something far more important than physical beauty. It's an inner beauty. It's a beauty in the sight of God. Over against this external show of beauty, verse 4, Peter says, verse 4, but let it, that is your adornment, be, and we might see your focus, what you're obsessed about, if you're going to be obsessed about anything, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He says, you know that inner you, that hidden person of the heart, meaning it's not what people see. It's not what people can see on your social media profile. It's the you that no one else sees but God. That you, that part of you, that hidden person. Oh yeah, he says, that is to be your focus. If you spend 30 minutes to an hour a day or however long, getting yourself ready for the day, however long you spend, ask yourself, how long do I spend preparing the hidden person of the heart? How long do I spend preparing my soul? How much time have I spent on my knees in the word, preparing my heart before God? Last Wednesday, I was sharing with the church how that the Puritans were characteristically introspective, examining their souls and re-examining their souls to a fault. But I fear today's evangelicals typically fall to the opposite extreme. We are all too oblivious of our soul condition. We are all too quick to neglect spending time with the Lord, taking time to be holy. We're not spending time in secret. That's just not characteristic of our age. Well, how's the hidden person of the heart here to be adorned? It's by spending time with God. It's by taking attention to the things we don't often take attention to, but that the word gives attention to. Adorning ourselves with this kind of imperishable qualities that Peter describes here. Years ago, I was witnessing to a woman who uh, we were sitting there waiting together uh, to board a flight. And at one point in the conversation, she told me that she was once Miss Tennessee. <laughs> she was once Miss Tennessee. I wouldn't have guessed that at this time. She was quite a bit older. She had quite a few wrinkles. I tried not to act too surprised or fall out of my chair, but I was. Because you could be up for the Miss America competition, and you might even win it, but those are perishable qualities of beauty, aren't they? Because any beauty there is going to fade. As Peter has said at the end of chapter 1, the glory of man fades like a flower of the grass. It's here and gone. My point is that whatever beauty Miss America has in the sight of men, it's perishable. It's not going to last. While this beauty in the sight of God, that Peter's saying, this is where your priority needs to be. This is what manages your submission to your husband, following God's role for you in marriage. He says, this is imperishable, this kind of beauty. Peter's saying, a wife who manages to let her husband lead by a gentle and quiet spirit. That, that is not a 
silent, not a mute, we would say, not a mute or fearful spirit, but a gentle and quiet spirit. This is a woman in control. She's in control of her spirit. The same is a woman with remarkable, imperishable inner beauty. God says that is what, when I look at the heart, that's what I say is beautiful. Christian wives must not let their husbands, sorry, sorry women, Christian wives must let their husbands lead. And Peter's talking about submission that is motivated by pure love, managed by inner beauty. But thirdly, Peter tells us this submission is modeled by godly examples. Look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So Peter calls to mind holy women in former times who model for us being submissive to their own husbands. And Peter says these women were empowered to do so as they hoped in God, because they hoped in God. Now how ironic is it that when Peter looks back upon holy women in history who are being submissive to their husbands, he's saying this was a good thing. He's saying this pleased God. He's saying it was a good thing because it is God's design. But our culture views history Same history, but they view it through a Marxist paradigm where everything is said to be about class struggle. It's all about power and control. It's a worldview that removes God and his revelation from the picture and then which reduces everything in history to a struggle for economical power. It's really all about money. Which, ironically, this love of money is the root of all evil. But imbibing that sort of a view of history can only mean one thing. It can mean... It can only mean rejecting God, rejecting his revelation. And if you strip history of God and his revelation to us, then of course you're not going to share the hope which these holy women had in God. You don't have a God to hope in. Of course, you will see then their submission to their husbands, even their submission to God, as nothing more than oppressive patriarchy. See, that's all it is. These women are just being controlled. There is no God. There is no plan for marriage. That is the way our culture is looking at, at least the lens through which they are looking at this history. But Peter's Peter's not there. Peter's not justifying man's abuse of his wife. But he is saying, looking at godly women through a Christian lens, through a biblical lens, that will encourage you. It will encourage you, wives, to also hope in God. These are godly examples. You must trust God like these wives of the past, no matter how difficult a person your husband is. Peter next offers a specific example in verse 6. He says, Just as Sarah also obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. We might ask, where does Sarah call Abraham Lord? Well, the instance Peter has in mind is recorded in Genesis 18, 9 through 12. Where God tells Abraham that this time next year, behold, Sarah will have a child. (laughs) But Sarah was listening at the tent door and Abraham and Sarah were old. They were so advanced in age that Sarah was past childbearing. And so she laughed to herself saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? Shall my Lord give me a son? That's what she's saying. Peter seizes on what is really Sarah's offhand remark. She's just making a casual offhand remark here about her husband, she refers to him with this respectful ancient Near Eastern title as Lord. It was in her day, in that ancient time, a way of showing respect for your husband. And Peter's point 
it's certainly not that Christian wives today must address their husbands as Lord. You know, no, that's certainly not the, the point here. The point is that Christian wives must show respect. So even if your husband doesn't respect God, Peter's saying you must respect him. You must respect him for who God made him to be. He's responsible for you. He's responsible for the home. You want to see a model wife, Christian? You won't find her in Hollywood. Peter's saying, you want to find a godly wife, a model of a godly wife, look at holy women of the past who hope in God. Many of them are in the word of God. Christian wives can display Christ-likeness in their marriage by letting their husbands lead. Peter's shown us what that looks like, how that kind of submission can be empowered. But I know many of you women are waiting for it. You've been waiting very patiently. Thank you. We want to get to the men here. Thankfully, Peter doesn't keep the woman hanging. Because to display Christ-likeness in your home, he offers a second exhortation, this one to the husbands. A Christian husband must show honor to his wife. So a Christian wife must let her husband lead, but according to the word of God, a Christian husband must show honor to his wife. Verse 7, you husbands, you Christian husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. One of the main reasons that so many women today are absolutely livid with anything to do about male leadership is because of how evil and selfish men are and how badly men have exploited and taken advantage of women and treated them like, like personal property or goods for consumption. And it's too often husbands that are leading that train. Treating their wives like slaves or subjects or like a commodity they need only whenever they've got the drive. What do you see? All of this is a satanic distortion. This is contrary to God's plan. And contrary to this distortion, verse 7, Peter shows us three ways then that the Christian husband must show honor to his wife. First Peter says, honor your wife by understanding her. Verse 7 you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter has to say this because, generally speaking, women are an enigma and men don't understand them. And he's acknowledging a reality. It's not simply a biological reality, but it's certainly deeper than that. It's an ontological reality that we find even in the beginning of Genesis, beginning of the Word of God, that men and women are, in fact, different. Wow. They're different. And truly understanding a woman requires, for a man especially, a lot of work. It requires a lot of time and attention to detail. That's right. Details that us men tend to overlook without even knowing that we've overlooked it. What Peter's saying here, live with your wife in an understanding way. Of course, when a man wants to become a professional in some sort of a career, he's typically spending many hours, many dollars, burning many brain cells to gain some kind of a degree, some kind of experience and understanding in this field of study. He wants to be a success in his career. Well, husband, when you said, I do. When you signed the marriage certificate, you signed up for the job. And Peter's wants you, Peter wants you to ask yourself, how well do you know your wife? How well, husbands, do you understand her 
emotional and spiritual needs. Men, are you with me? All men. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is for you. All right. So, how well do you understand her emotional and spiritual needs? What measures have you undertaken to study your wife? That is an excellent question. If your understanding of your wife were graded on a scale from that of a kindergarten level to that of a PhD, where would you locate yourself? Would you still be in kindergarten, learning who your wife is? Would you be in grade school? Would you be working on that bachelor's yet? How well do you know your wife? God is calling husbands to continue pursuing a deeper knowledge. You know, it's ironic. No one had to tell you that when you first met her. Because love compelled you to get to know her and to try to win her heart and please her. But God is saying, don't stop. That job isn't over. You are to continue living with your wife in an understanding way. You can't honor her without that. You can't honor her without endeavoring to understand her. A second way the Christian husband must show honor to his wife is honor your wife by protecting her. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. No, Peter's not insulting women. He's not insulting women as intellectually or spiritually inferior to men, but he is acknowledging a simple fact of genetics. It's the fact that men are, generally speaking, physically stronger than women. Denying this reality, which our culture too often does, is a cruelty to women. It really is. Because it's not men you hear about getting raped all the time. It's women. Women being taken advantage of by evil men. Evil men, even today, these days, it's, it's men in dresses. Men dressing up as women, taking advantage of women. But Peter's saying, don't take advantage of your wife. Don't you dare. He says, use that strength to honor your wife, to serve her, to protect her, to provide for her needs. Husband, are you a Christian? The world ought to know when they look at you, that chivalry is not dead. There's still one Christian in this world that I know, this Christian husband, and he will do anything to care for his wife. A husband must serve his wife by protecting her. And by the way, protecting your wife as, as someone weaker means protecting her from yourself. There are things, men, that we wouldn't stand for anybody saying to our wife, and that means we shouldn't. Say it to our wife. We shouldn't treat her harshly like that. We must, to protect her from others, we must protect our wives from ourselves, of course, first of all. Honor your wife by understanding her. Honor your wife by protecting her. But a third way, Peter relates, a husband, a Christian husband, must show honor to his wife, is honor your wife by treating her as your equal. Treating her as your equal. Peter continues, verse 7, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. He's saying, honor your wife by treating her as your equal because she is. She is your equal. As a fellow heir of the grace of life, Peter's saying, your wife, who's believed on Jesus Christ, she got everything you did. God doesn't treat her any differently than he treats you. She's a fellow heir, a co-regent. And that's Peter's basis for the respect that husbands must show their wives. If God treats your wife as your equal, you ought to as well. That's simple. So the biblical model of marriage really involves then a mutual submission. 
wives submit to their husbands by letting them lead. The husbands must submit to their wives by listening to them, caring for them, taking responsibility for them. We see the same idea played out, this mutual submission in Ephesians 5.21, where before calling wives to be subject to their husbands, Paul commands all believers, that would include husbands, that would include men, to be subject to one another. All of you, he says, all believers are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So husbands do have a responsibility to submit to their wives as well. A husband may not submit to his wife as the leader in the home. He is to lead, but he must submit to her by understanding her, by caring for her, by understanding her as his equal and treating her like that. He must submit to serving her as one for which he is responsible. You see, the Bible doesn't approve any sort of stereotype of the man, the husband, sitting on the couch watching Monday night football while barking orders to his wife. That that is not a biblical model. Really, if you want a, a caricature... If you want a stereotype from the Bible of what a husband is to look like, look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.25, Paul goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives, and he doesn't stop there. He says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The honor that Christ commands husbands to show their wives assumes this kind of a selfless giving Love, it's a love that gives all, lays down all for the other. On November 21, 2010, Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter and his fellow Marine were stationed on a rooftop in Afghanistan when an enemy grenade landed nearby. Carpenter dove on the grenade and absorbed the blast with his body, saving the life of the other Marine. You know, to land on a grenade, to fall on a grenade is a universal death sentence pretty much jesus said no greater love has a man than this than that a man lays down his life for his friends well jesus did that for us he gave himself up for us as the church men he's done that for you and now he's calling on you to do the same for your wives It's a love that gives all. It's a love that lays down all, even Monday night football. Everything. My wife needs help. My wife needs attention. Men are called to care and show honor for their wives. I'm pretty sure that no wife would have a problem following her husband if he loved her that much. Well, Peter concludes verse 7 with a warning He says, do this, men, honor your wife in this way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Listen up, brothers. If you don't give honor to your wife, God's saying, you got a problem with him. He's got a problem with you. If you don't honor your wife, God's not interested in anything you have to say. He says, you go and make it right with your wife. That is how much God cares about this. This is a first-rate issue for a believer. Christians must display Christ-likeness in their marriage. And this involves a mutual submission we've seen, where Christian wives must let their husbands lead, and Christian husbands must show honor to their wives. They must be willing to lay down all for their wives. This is what God desires, even if you're not married to a Christian. In fact, if you're not married to a Christian, this is all the more important. Because 
it is by displaying Christ's likeness. Submission, like the submission of Jesus to the Father in his suffering, like we see in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. Or the kind of love that we see Jesus giving for the church by giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. It is that kind of Christ-likeness that God is calling us to in our marriages. And if you have a non-believing spouse, they need to see that. They need to feel that. They need to know that, that that is your heart. It should be clear the Bible does not give us any sort of a chauvinist recipe for marriage. All those chauvinist caricatures, that's all they are. They're straw men. The Bible gives us a model of servant leadership where husbands are called to lead their wives, but by assuming chief responsibility for the home. Protecting, providing, caring for the wife, seeking to understand her thoughts, her feelings, her needs. And meanwhile, wives are called to support their husbands, to affirm them, to follow them insofar as their husbands are following Christ. And I trust the Lord is speaking to us today then from his word that he's calling us to behave in a more Christ-like way in our marriages. What would change in your marriage if you put this into practice? He's calling us to reaffirm what the Bible teaches about marriage, to support and pray for those marriages all around us, those biblical, authentic marriages. Because our view of marriage has far-reaching ramifications for the state of the church and the state of society. And of course, if you're here today, the Bible would want you to know that marriage is not the ultimate relationship. The Bible teaches marriage itself is only a drama. It's a drama of the greater ultimate relationship that all of us need. A covenant relationship with God. It's a relationship that you can only enter into with God by exchanging vows with Him. By being inseparably joined to His Son in this eternal union. And if that's something that you've never experienced or you're not certain about that, I'd like to speak with you about that. How you can say, I do to Jesus Christ. And you can be eternally wed to the God who created you, a permanent union with God. If that's you, please see me or see another brother or sister here before you leave today. Let's pray.